From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Springs has chosen its next mayor. We'll dip into Yemi Mobilati's victory speech. Plus, StoryCorps heads to the Springs to gather people's stories that wouldn't necessarily make the news or history books. Whatever you talked about, I think people feel excited to know that that has value and that we want to make space for it. Also, in Antonito, one of the San Luis Valley's oldest towns, students learn a language their parents and grandparents were forbidden from speaking, sometimes by force. That abuse leads to this sense of shame. I mean, to speak your heart language and then to be told that that is wrong, and that shame is passed down, and it manifests itself in these different ways that we're not even aware of. Language learning as a way to empower young people The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Minus Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What is the opposite of a nail biter? Whatever it is, you'll find it in Colorado Springs. A concession came quickly in the mayoral runoff last night. Political newcomer and independent Yemi Mobilati hadn't seen the results at his watch party when his opponent conceded. Wayne Williams, Republican and former Secretary of State, had no path to victory. Mobilati is a pastor and businessman, originally from West Africa. He will be the spring's first elected black mayor. His win is a sign that the state's second largest city is not a shoe-in for Republicans, although the race is nonpartisan. Let's listen to some of his acceptance speech. I'll note he said, wow, seven times, then launched in. Oh, man, I see so many incredible people in the house. I wish I could just call you all by names because that's really what I want to do. Uh, this, this is our win. Yeah. This is our win. We are Colorado Springs. We are Colorado Springs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, friends, it's a new day in our beloved city. Do you believe that? Because I do. <laughs> it's a new day. And tonight, just like we did six weeks ago in the same room, we stand on a mountain of a new era in our city's history. Yes, Colorado Springs will become an inclusive, culturally rich, economically prosperous. Economically prosperous, safe, and vibrant city on a hill that shines brightly. You, the voters, have spoken. You have spoken. And you have chosen your next mayor. Hi, Nancy. (laughs) Friends, our city is hungry. As represented by this room tonight, we're ready for a leadership that represents all of our city. And I'm ready to serve as your 42nd mayor of Colorado Springs. 
of this beautiful, resilient, and passionate city of which I am very fond of. Who else is fond of this city? That's what I'm talking about. You see, to anyone who doubts that politics can be disrupted, reformed, and transformed into a hopeful experience, tonight is for you. To the citizen who has lost hope in this great experiment and a dream of our founders, what we call the United States of America, tonight is for you. To one in this room who is in utter disbelief that Republicans and Democrats and independents can work together. Can find common ground maybe even like each other. Tonight is for you. Yemi Mobilati, mayor-elect of Colorado Springs. As my colleague Andrea Chalfin of KRCC notes, it will be interesting to see how he gets along with city council, the majority of whom supported Mobilati's opponent. We are scheduled to speak with the mayor-elect later today. A conversation will bring you tomorrow. Now, earlier, you may have caught a subtlety that Mobilati will become the first elected black mayor of Colorado Springs. That's because in 1997, then-Mayor Bob Isaac stepped down three months before his term ended. The vice-mayor, Leon Young, who was African-American, finished the term. Today, there's a sports complex named for him. We'll be right back as young people learn a language their elders were forbidden from speaking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Listen, that thing, the state legislative session, it's over. Lawmakers have wrapped up their work. Housing and taxes. Progressive policies and moderate politics. And so much more. We're up for debate this year. And we're here to explain what did and didn't get done. And to look behind the curtain to see why that happened in a new episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. At CPR.org and wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are new efforts to pass the Spanish language on to the next generation in Colorado and preserve a dialect specific to Southern Colorado. Everywhere I've been in the quote-unquote Spanish-speaking world outside of Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado, has never heard of, or nor do they even use the word Puebla. And that's the only word we know for frying pan, whereas the rest of the Spanish-speaking world uses the word sartén. Aaron Abeda co-directs a homeschool consortium in Antonito. It's part of a pilot with a group called the Language Preservation Project. Denver Public Schools is also working with the group. I wonder what problem you saw in the community that you wanted to address? Well, to me, the loss and the poverty that exists here in in my hometown, where I've lived, honestly, in my core and in my heart, I've lived here before I was even alive, you know, because I'm the seventh of nine generations. So it's this sort of passed down hereditary sense of home. It's like a heart home. And, uh, but the poverty and the generational poverty that exists here has at its roots colonialism and loss and fear and doubt and all of those things which colonialism in my opinion breeds but the first thing that was 
outwardly taken, you know, were tangible things like land and water and civil rights and things like those, then the assault on language happened. And then when language goes, then identity goes. When identity goes, then the, the ills of poverty and isolation seep in. And those are things like drug use, alcoholism, neglect, apathy, complacency, all of those things. So to us, language was one of the linchpins because language is the way back into identity. And identity is a way into understanding who we are and where we're from and knowing where we're from and who we are. Well, that reconnects us with the land and the things that were lost, even if we don't literally regain the land Hmm. or regain the water. It also makes me think that because of colonialism, there was such shame carried around language and that if you can counteract shame, there's an empowerment in that. There's perhaps a sense of I can versus I can't. Most definitely. I mean, I was blessed that my grandmother taught me Spanish. Uh, And this is not to be derogatory or disparaging towards my parents, but my parents were literally beaten in school for speaking Spanish. So when me and my siblings came around, as any parent you would hope would do to protect their child or children in our case, Mm -hmm. they chose not to teach us Spanish because to them it was, well, it was painful, literally painful for them to speak Spanish. So we were lucky enough, my my brother Andrew and I, to learn it from our grandparents. And I, I think it's such a kindness for you to understand why your parents would not have taught it to you, given their own experiences, the abuse that they suffered. I want to note that in other places, not just in Colorado, the Language Preservation Project is working with younger kids. But in Antonito, it's, it's high schoolers. And I wonder why you are focusing on older students. Yeah, so it's not that the younger kids don't struggle with same some of the very same things that the older kids struggle with, but it was our opinion that the teenagers, the high schoolers in particular, uh, eighth graders on the cusp of being in high school, that they are in a closer state to the very same perils we've been talking about. Hmm. I mean, they're they're in closer proximity to those perils than the younger kids. So it was one of those things where. You know, it might be an older group of kids. They might not, you know, integrate and retain it the way a younger audience and a younger kid would. But they'll understand the necessity of identity through language. And that's why we wanted to start with the older kids, just because we just feel like they're more in danger. If That's uh, both literal and figurative danger. Yeah. I mean, give me an example of a literal danger that you hope a program like this can help combat without offering any names, because that would be, you know, irresponsible of me. Of the 44 kids that we have, we have about three with both parents at home, four with both parents at home. I haven't done the actual math, but like 10%, basically. Uh, So lots of kids affected by directly through their immediate family with drug addiction, with abandonment, with all sorts of uh, different types of neglect. So that danger is literal in that that's the example that's been set for them and we're trying to counter that with our curriculum and the curriculum that the language and preservation project helped provide in this case was to reconnect with their language now the linguistic approach it's called heritage language preservation and right when you talk about a heritage language is it spanish or is it 
even more specific to the dialect we mentioned in our introduction? Oh, it's most definitely Spanish. I, I, I you know, 90% of the words that we use, you know, we might transpose an R and an A. Like we have a lot of people say parte instead of padre. Hmm, for father. I don't know why that happened, but we say parte, some of us do. But it's not like people in the Spanish-speaking world, you know, out, at large wouldn't understand what we're trying to say. So I'd say, you know, 80, 90% of it is quote-unquote Spanish. And uh, definitely, you know, I've been to Spain, I've been to Mexico, I subsist and I get along just fine in those places. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll crack out a word that I use here that they've never, ever heard of. When I was in Spain, I, I really love hats. Uh -huh. I don't know if that's too much information. No. But I wanted to go buy a, I wanted to buy a cachucha and I went into the store looking for cachuchas and every place I went to, they looked at me like I was from Mars. I mean, I was like, and I was like, oh, traditional Spanish, gorra. And then, oh, okay, you want a hat. Do you have a name for the dialect? Well, not, uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I mean, I know it's been studied by Dr. Luis Trujillo, by Dr. Ruben Cobos. Both of them uh, created dictionaries of the northern New Mexico and southern Colorado Spanish. But other than it being called northern New Mexico and southern Colorado Spanish, the name I would call it over and over again is heritage language. Heritage language. And and it is a mix as well, the remaining percentages. There's yeah, French. There's Spanish, Nahuatl. Yeah, there's definitely some French in there. We use a word, hehen, which some people understand is a mosquito. But most places refer to mosquitoes as sancudos or mosquitos. But the hen is an indigenous Nahuatl, you know. So uh, we use that word around here. And very few people that I know of would choose to use that hmm. as an indicator of a mosquito. Ute as well, um, right? Yeah. So like we have uh, some villages, one of them, Mogote. That's a Ute word. It's weird, right? Because we're isolated. You know, just because of rural community, high elevation, just far from any metropolis, really. But linguistically, we're so integrated, at least in the heritage language. It's it's kind of cool in a way. Uh, it speaks to conquest, too, though, and it speaks to colonialism. It speaks to, you know, manifest destiny and all those things. But the fact that all of those things were preserved in one dialect, in one, you know, pretty small location, it's pretty unique if you think about the enormity of the entire globe. Uh, back to Spanish specifically, I'm curious what portion of kids in the school speak Spanish? In our particular school? Yeah. Uh, that's like fluently, zero percent. Mm -hmm. We have two or three kids of the of the 40-some that we have that understand it pretty well. Uh, we had uh, a couple of kids that were really good at the, you know, what I will call book Spanish or traditional Spanish because they've, you know, had it previously, like as a, as a class. So they knew some of that relatively well, but no, none of our students speak it as a first language. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Aaron Abeta about language preservation in Southern Colorado, specifically in the community of Antonito, where a dialect of Spanish is spoken that is unique to that part of the world. Uh, it is mixed as well with indigenous languages and French. Here's a student of yours named Sierra talking about how growing up, her parents didn't speak Spanish, but then 
she moved in with her grandparents who did. I think you'll probably recognize this story in your own experience. And so I started picking up all of like the little sayings that they would say and how they used to like speak in Spanish to each other when they didn't want us little kids to hear or if like, oh, we're going to go blah, blah, blah over here in Spanish and so they can go by themselves and not have to take over to kids. It does remind me to some extent of your experience with your grandparents. You mentioned the abuse that is part of this story. I mean, that's certainly one reason a language isn't passed down. What what are other barriers? Well, I think that abuse leads to this sense of shame. I mean, to speak your heart language and then to be told that that is wrong, and not only so wrong, but so wrong as to be beaten for it, creates a sense of shame and the sense of fear. And I, it's my opinion, I don't know that there's any scientific data to, to back this up, but that that shame is passed down and it manifests itself in these different ways that we're not even aware of. So by the time it hits, you know, 2023, and you have high school kids that are trying their best to speak their heritage language, that shame may be captured in the moment. Oh, I screwed that up. You know, I shouldn't have said it that way. How embarrassing. But that shame is not anything new if you look at the at the way that the parents, our parents, being beaten in school for speaking Spanish, theirs was a different sort of shame. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's the same thing. I'm ashamed of speaking Spanish. They're more ashamed of their failures or their inadequacies or their starts and stops or just any mistake that they might make in a way that they wouldn't be with other subjects and mistakes they'd make in those other subjects. I think this is a really important point, right? Because if you're going to acquire a language, you have to be uh, willing and in an environment that accepts mistakes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we still we still make mistakes speaking English, right? Right. We all make mistakes, whether it's speaking or math or just living. I mean, it's, it just happens. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, the shame associated with language is like, you can see it on their faces. You can see it in their body language. You can see it in their reactions immediately. Whereas if they were to make a mistake, you know, on a math problem, you know, they might get upset or whatever, but it wouldn't be ashamed of making a mistake on a math problem. Here's another student from your class named Rudy. He said he wants to learn Spanish to keep it alive here and to expand his horizons, to talk to more people in his own family and in the world. And he said he eventually wants to pass it on to his own kids. Because it's a part of their culture, it's a part of their history, and it's what my parents, their grandparents, their parents have done throughout the years, and I'd hate to be the one to break it. Rudy made those comments after your final project. Um, How does it feel to hear him say that? I'm actually a little choked up, if I'm being honest. There's something happening to my eyes right now. Um, But no, I I mean, that's the mission of our school. And that's the reason for the project in the first place. And that's just spot on. What what did you have the students do in class? Like, is there a tactic that people elsewhere in Colorado could replicate, whether it's in school or just within a family? They took culturally responsive texts, culturally competent texts, but texts that were intended for much younger audiences and 
then they analyze them with the frameworks of high school teenage learners. So to me, that was very unique. On a second level, I really appreciated that the texts that the kids were learning were these mirrors to some of the experiences they had gone through and were going through. And it's just a rare occasion where books reflect who we are, especially in school, because most texts and most books reflect a mainstream perspective, and none of these books did. So all of that's, uh, in my in my opinion, easily replicable by books which represent the students in your class. And let's just find some texts that we can read on a really basic elementary level, but let's examine them with the cognition that we have as young adults. Pretty cool. How do you make sure that the students stick with this? Because it, you, you can't learn a language in a single year, right? No, and I mean, that's our hope because, you know, of the mission of our school, whereas most high schools require one, maybe two years of foreign language, we're going to offer it every year. Uh, we'd, we'd hope with Language Preservation Project, but, you know, that was funded through a grant to the Margo Foundation, who are wonderful and powerful allies of ours. And if not with them, then with someone that can keep this, you know, proverbial ball rolling. That is Aaron Abeda, educator and poet in Antonito, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley. His poetry collection, by the way, Ancestor of Fire, is nominated for a Reading the West Book Award, thanks to the Language Preservation Project for providing that audio of the students. All right, Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a visit from StoryCorps. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. A century ago, Colorado's economy depended upon the sugar beet, a white root vegetable related to red table beets. At the peak of Colorado's sugar rush, as many as 24 refineries around the state beat the beets into pure sucrose and helped reduce the country's dependence on foreign sugar cane. Even the beet byproducts proved valuable. Leftover beet pulp fattened livestock. In Greeley and Eaton, beet syrup sprayed onto dirt streets made a surface as hard as asphalt. And some Coloradans dried and rolled sugar beet leaves for foul-smelling cigars. Today, only Fort Morgan's sugar refinery remains in operation, half a century after Americans embraced high-fructose corn syrup as their sweetener of choice. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. StoryCorps is coming to Colorado Springs, and your chance to sign up begins tomorrow. The project gathers the stories of everyday people in their own words. Conversations between family or friends get archived in the Library of Congress. Leah Zickmund directs the StoryCorps mobile tour. I wouldn't say that there's a specific type of story that we're looking for. We really have an open invitation to people in the community to come in and talk about whatever they'd like to. So um, whether that's sharing your love story, your story of immigration, a story of struggle, a story of joy. As an ongoing oral history project, we really just like to invite people to share about what's important to them and what's exciting in their life that they would want to share and archive. StoryCorps marks its 20th anniversary this year. Since 2003, it has collected more than 60,000 interviews. 
StoryCorps Mobile has been on the road for more than 15 years. Zickman says the best storytelling comes from the heart. I think people should think about someone that they really want to talk to and have a conversation with. So a big part of what we're doing is we're asking people to talk to someone that they care about and that they know. And that can make for such a valuable experience. I think sometimes when people hear the term oral history, they imagine being interviewed by someone like an expert and someone who's looking for certain information. But the experience that we're really trying to encourage people to have is to sit down with someone and have a conversation that's meaningful to the both of you more than anything else. So, for example, I've recorded with both of my parents individually since I started working for StoryCorps and ended up learning new things about them. And they should definitely take into consideration just someone that they would want to honor or spend time with, maybe someone that they want to remember a friend that has been meaningful to them or a mentor that they've really cared about. Um, All those things are really great to bring into the space. Sigmund adds it doesn't have to be complicated and it shouldn't be stressful either. I'm a huge proponent for just kind of winging it a little bit. So (laughs) I went in with um, a combination of Um, I had a post-it note with a couple of questions I wanted to ask. And a couple of them actually came from our StoryCorps. We have a list of great questions that people can use for their StoryCorps recordings or just in general. But there's really beautiful questions on that list that include, you know, when have you been most proud of me? What are you most proud of? Things like that. So when I recorded with my parents, I kind of asked them both sort of more traditional, tell me about growing up, tell me about becoming parents. And I remember with my dad specifically, he had some really hilarious stories from childhood that he used to always tell me growing up. And so I asked him to share those so that we had them archived as well. But should you feel nervous sitting in the mobile booth StoryCorps got you? We've kind of built our programming around that idea that the everyday person is not always as comfortable with sharing their story or doesn't really believe that the story that they have to share is valuable based on what they've heard in other areas and forms of media, or if your story doesn't reflect that which you've seen in movies or books, that it's not interesting. And so people do come in with a lot of nerves. And what we do is we have facilitators. And so that's a a trained staff member who greets you when you come in for your appointment. They make sure you know what you want to talk about, and they talk you through the entire hour of the experience. Leah Zygmunt directs the StoryCorps Mobile Tour, which comes to Colorado Springs in June in partnership with CPR and KRCC. Let's listen to part of a conversation they recorded on a previous visit. This is nine-year-old Noah talking with his grandpa, Daryl Barnes, in 2021. What was it like being bit by a black widow? Well, I didn't know what it was. I got up in the morning one time and I felt this kind of pain under my arm and I just couldn't figure out what it was and then I felt another pain under my in my neck and I just it really hurt kind of bad and I looked over on the bed and there was this black insect and so I captured the insect in a glass and sure enough it was a black widow so I was very frightened I thought that I might die because you know black widows are supposed to be poisonous but Generally speaking, you don't die if you get bit by a black widow unless you're highly allergic to them. So went to the hospital and got uh, some uh, pills and things, and after a while I felt just fine. What was your first job? My first job was delivering newspapers on a bicycle 
in Colorado Springs, Colorado. What kind of games did you play growing up? Oh, I played all kinds of games. I played four square and tether ball. A lot of the games you play, and then some games that you might not play, like um, tiddlywinks and marbles. And, of course, we, we rode our bikes, and we played baseball, played football, played soccer. Daryl Barnes answering questions from his nine-year-old grandson, Noah, in 2021. StoryCorps' Leah Zickman says being on the road has been enlightening beyond her expectations. We asked her to recount a favorite story. It's not if there's one story that stands out. It's how not to immediately start thinking of every story. I started, um, you know, my time at StoryCorps, I started as a facilitator who traveled with the tour and in that time recorded over 300 recordings across the country. And what I walked away with was this exciting feeling that while I had read textbooks and I you know, was in school and learned all of these different parts of our history, there's such a rich and exciting way of learning it through the people who have lived it and the people who are sharing it. And for the storytellers, Zygmunt says it's a profound experience. After that recording happens and you know, people usually hug and we take photos and give them the option to archive their recording and just really feel like their story, whatever that story was, whether you come in to talk about learning how to ride a unicycle. That was one of the recordings I facilitated on the road with someone talking about learning how to ride a unicycle. Whatever you talked about, I think people feel excited to know that that has value and that we want to make space for it. If this piques your interest, you can sign up starting tomorrow, May 18th. Come to krcc.org for all the information. StoryCorps Mobile begins recording June 1st. And a fun sign note, they'll be back in their customized Airstream trailer, a recording studio on wheels for the first time since the pandemic shutdown. Okay, stay tuned. We'll watch Grass Grow with a Marshall Fire survivor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a surprising place in the Southwest that shows us how we can save water in cities. Vegas is excess, so they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. But that is just not the case here. On the new episode of Parched from CPR News, see how America's playground is changing to adapt to a drier Colorado River. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The effects of the Marshall Fire in Boulder County reverberate long after the ashes are swept and homes are rebuilt. It's been about a year and a half since the wildfire tore through Louisville and Superior. And CPR's podcast, My Story So Far, dedicates an episode to how the fire changed two people's outlooks. Here's host Luis Antonio Perez. On December 30th, 2022, the community center in the town of Superior was crowded with people. The town was hosting a big breakfast on the one-year anniversary of the Marshall Fire. Almost 300 people showed up. After breakfast, Jen Cowish, co-director of the local grassroots group Superior Rising, stood on a small stage at the front of the room to gather everyone's attention. A couple months ago, we, we had this idea that it would be really wonderful to hear from our residents. 
it just kind of formed naturally that we would be gathering today and it made a lot of sense that there would be folks that would have some things they wanted to say today. When I first met Jen, she said she felt it was important to give people a space on the anniversary to share what they had experienced in the year since the fire. People moved toward the stage, turned their chairs, ready to listen and to share. I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm really hopeful that you hear some things today that make you feel a little less crazy, a little more normal, and that we're all going through this together. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Superior Rising, for inviting us as guests here. It's really an honor for us to just be here and be supportive of this event on this important anniversary. I knew the anniversary would be a difficult and emotional day for folks. Jen hoped that being together and sharing stories would feel cathartic, especially on this day. It was clear to me that this community had formed deeper bonds since the fire. I heard from people about how the Marshall Fire changed their relationships with their family, their neighbors, with strangers who had since become close friends. For our first storyteller, Paul Paiva, one particular relationship in his life went through a transformation in the year after the fire. For Paul, it was a change he never expected. Hi, everyone. I was vacationing in Costa Rica with my then 11-year-old daughter last year on this day. That Thursday afternoon, I received many texts and phone calls from friends back home, alerting me of the status of the disaster in progress. I was not too concerned that my home would be affected because it was located in a big clearing in the space behind Home Depot. I slept that evening with faith in God and faith in the obvious clearing that the house would absolutely not burn. In the morning, I received a call from my neighbor. My phone was on speaker, so my daughter heard everything. We were told that the house burnt to a crisp with absolutely nothing remaining. My daughter started sobbing and left in a hurry to text and call her friends from our neighborhood. When I heard the news, I didn't cry or react, but went into a haze. Back home, I happened to enjoy collecting and displaying about a dozen Salvador Dali prints. It was now as if I was a figure in one of those surrealistic paintings that used to hang on the walls of my living room. We were scheduled to return from our vacation the next day. Finally, we were on the plane coming home. It, I was fine. I chatted normally with a lady next to me. She asked if my home is Denver, and I said, yes. A couple of hours into the flight, she finished reading her novel and explained that she likes to trade books with people on planes. She asked if I wanted her book. I said, sure. I stared for a full minute at the book placed in my hands. I didn't even open it. I turned and said to her in a quiet and regulated voice, thank you, this is the only book I own. 
I thought of my five tall bookcases of volumes I had accumulated lovingly and treasured over the span of my life. Novels, self-help, spirituality, undergrad, and my most favorite graduate study textbooks that I still use fondly in my work. I thought of the sheaves and sheaves of notes I had handwritten for three books I was in the middle of authoring. All of this is now gone. We landed in Denver and I grabbed my overhead luggage so we can start our journey back home. My ex-spouse happens to work at the airport. My daughter was texting away and she tells me, mom is working right now and plans to meet us in three minutes. My former spouse and I regrettably had a difficult divorce, replete with court battles and attorney fees, as well as eight subsequent years of turbulent and traumatic co-parenting. When the kids had a birthday, we had two parties in two separate homes to ensure zero interaction between parents. My 11-year-old daughter was age one when we divorced. Sure enough, after a minute of walking, we met her mother in the middle of the B concourse. I let mother and daughter exchange a hug. I was about to continue our journey homeward when my former spouse said to me, Paul, I am so sorry about your house. She looked into my eyes kindly. For the first time since I had heard the news about a day earlier, it hit me. I started bawling like a baby. My ex-spouse hugged me, a long, tight, beautifully genuine, caring hug. After a bit, I stopped bawling and I let her go. Then I started up again and she hugged me again. That happened three times. Then my daughter and I continued our journey walking down Concourse B. As we walked, I felt euphoric. My eyes were still damp with tears of grief and despair from a few moments ago, but I felt a joy that was calming, radiating into me, giving peace to my soul. You see, folks, I realized that my daughter just witnessed her mom and dad hug for the first time in her life. I knew that the intimate connection I had with her 10 years ago, which had long vanished, had returned in a curious yet real way. I knew there would be no longer any court battles nor attorney fees. I could not prove it, but I knew in my heart that neither of us would consider lifting a sword of accusation ever again. In the past year, amid this grieving and loss of our possessions in the fire, I have also basked in a peace that I didn't know would ever be possible for my children and myself. What I have learned this past year is that it no longer matters to me what my house looks like, whether it's an apartment or a condo, rented or owned, tiny, medium or spacious, permanent or temporary, 
or if the kitchen counters are premium granite slabs or cheap peeling linoleum. The fire has given me resolve, a ferocious thirst for prioritizing my life and my children's lives. I no longer have projects that I was going to embark upon in 10, five, or two years. All of my life's projects have now begun. What is important is not my house, rather, am I doing my life mission on this planet? Am I living with love and intention? My children and I cataloged the questions we had been asked these past months into what we liked and disliked. Here's the questions we disliked. Do you have insurance? Number one hated question because it's dismissive of loss, regardless of the answer. As if money can replace our precious treasures, like my children's artwork, the locks of my daughter's hair from birth, and her first haircut at age one, and her baby teeth, which she hid under her pillow, which I carefully saved. Number two, are you rebuilding? Did you file with FEMA as yet? Any questions having to do with money? Where do you live now? Here's the questions we liked. I'm so sorry for your loss. I cannot imagine. What are you doing this summer? Our two most favorite questions, which no one asked, but which we empower our friends to ask us are, what do you miss from your old house? And how have you changed? Thanks, folks. Paul's story and how his outlook on life changed since the fire really struck me. His story reminded me of how sometimes a tragedy can remind us of what's important and bring us closer to the people who matter most. I have one more story about the Marshall Fire to share with you. This one was told at our event in Louisville. When I met Missy Petty, she told me about how disorienting it was to lose her routine, to have the small things that were part of her everyday life suddenly change. Uh, my name is Missy, and I'm so grateful to have been here tonight and hear these stories and be part of this. And it's an honor to be up here tonight. Our situation was a little bit unique in that we were kind of an in-betweener. We were a partial burn. So um, the neighborhoods on two sides of us completely burned pretty much. And our house caught on fire. One side of the house burned and um, burned a hole through the wall. When I first saw photos of it, there was this hole. And I was like, oh, you know, we just patched the hole and we're good. And uh, when we started going in the house, you know, we realized that that just wasn't the case. Everything was covered in soot. It had gotten really hot in there. And so our shutters, we had these vinyl shutters inside that melted. And so like those first couple of days just were kind of a black 
dark, cloudy haze to me. And so, you know, there's the initial grief where you you don't know where you're going to go and you've lost so much. But there's also, there was that loss that affected the entire community and that disconnection or disorientation where everybody around us had to kind of disperse and like what happened to that community. And I, you know, I remember experiencing that loss, particularly, I think, in the loss of routine. You know, your, your routine is just gone. There were two prevailing things that have kind of evolved through this past year that are part of my routine that kind of represent how we've been adapting. And one of them is running. Before the fire, I ran three or four times a week. I had the same route, same time of day. I would see the same people run past my neighbors' houses and wave to my neighbors. And, and suddenly that was gone. And I, you know, I lost that big part of my routine and the way to, to, to connect to the community. Um, the other aspect is, is kind of silly, but it's Target. So I know that you know, pretty much everybody in this room probably goes to the Superior Target on a routine basis, and you know where everything is, and you go and you like, you know, restock on your stuff, and you know your route through Target, you got it all planned. When we evacuated, we evacuated to Boulder. The next day, we were in the Boulder Target trying to kind of restock on basic things that we hadn't taken with us, and we couldn't find anything. And it was so frustrating and very disorienting. And I just remember a friend of mine and a coworker calling me, and I'm in the health and beauty section. Just I just want to find my face lotion. And she says, are you okay? And I... I'm like frustrated because I can't find anything. We're starting to figure out just how much we've lost, even though it's still there. And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. And I just started crying in the middle of the store. And I just remember that so vividly, that feeling of disorientation in a place that you should know. Shortly after that, we moved out of Boulder and temporarily moved into downtown Louisville in an Airbnb. And I felt compelled that I had to go out on a run just to kind of reconnect in some way. And so I didn't have my winter running stuff. I had my running shoes. So I I layered up in random stuff and I went out on a run around Community Park. There was still snow on the ground from the offensive snow that came less than 24 hours after the fire. And I'm running around Community Park And there are people out there in the morning probably trying to do the same thing I was doing. And everybody looked so sad. You could just tell that we were all hurting. And I, first time ever, was running and crying. It was sad, but it was so good to be able to share that with people that you knew had been affected and were hurting in some way from this. And so it was healing at the same time. We stayed in downtown Louisville a couple of days, and then we found a more long-term solution in Broomfield. And we began kind of trying to rebuild our, our home, you know, our feel of home. And so, of course, we need to go to Target. We started going to the Westminster Target 
And that was weird at first. I mean, it was a different layout. It wasn't the superior target. And you're going in and buying like basic stuff you haven't bought in 20 years, like spatulas and potholders. Over the next month or two, we got familiar with that target and, you know, started kind of restocking on our basic things. And then in the March time frame, we were actually able to find a place in downtown Louisville. And all this time, you know, we are going back to our house on a regular basis. Um, we had to rip everything down to the studs and basically toss everything that was in there. We were able to see in the spring as the debris cleanup started and the grass started growing. And I don't know if you guys remember that, but I, I was actually pretty offended that it dared to grow initially. That was my first reaction. Like, how, you know, I'm, this is sacred ground here. I'm not ready for this. That was my first reaction. And then I, I saw it as defiance, that it was growing in spite of what had happened and, you know, it was going to pursue. And so I, I found comfort in that. And, you know, as we settled into downtown Louisville, which we were hoping was the last move that we had before we moved back home, I established a new running route, which, you know, was a familiar area, but it was different from my original one. But it was comforting in that I was still able to run past friends' houses like the Bradleys and the Holmbergs, and I would see Krista walking her dog. And so, you know, I made new connections, but in a familiar place. And then in the fall, our superior target opened. And uh, with great joy, we went back to our superior target. It was the second time I cried in target. Uh, This time it was tears of happiness. But again, you know, it was our target, but it was different. You know, they had changed the layout a little bit and they had to remodel. And so even though it was in the same location, we still had to kind of get used to it. At the same time, when we're, we're starting to rebuild our interior and rebuild the side of our house and our neighbors to the sides of us, are, are, their structures are starting to go up. And I ran into my neighbor sometime in the fall, and he said, you know, I'll apologize in advance for the construction noise. And I was like, don't apologize for that. That is music to my ears. I'm excited to say that we are moving back into our house next week, which is very exciting. And so we're excited to be back home, but it's going to be very different. You know, I'll have my running route, but it'll look very different. We've all probably gone out and created a new community in some way. And we're all looking forward to getting back, whatever that looks like. And it'll be the familiar, but different. But I think it'll be bigger because we're bringing new experiences and new connections back with us. And I think it'll be stronger. Thank you for listening to my story. My story so far with host Luis Antonio Perez. Find the podcast wherever you get them and at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Andrea Chalfin. 
You're with CPR News and KRCC.